This is episode 184 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Engineering Intestinal Grafts with Dr. Vivian Lee. Hey everybody, this is Dalon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. We took a bit of a break over the holidays, but we're back now and we've got you covered for any big news you may have missed Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn at Stem Cell Podcast to catch up on the hottest research published over the holidays. Today, we have Dr. Vivian Lee from the Francis Crick Institute. She's on the podcast to talk about her research on Wnt signaling and bowel cancer. Wow. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming right up. But first, are you genome editing human intestinal organoids? Who isn't these days? Or maybe you're looking to incorporate this technique to develop better human disease models. Discover stem cells validated and easy to follow protocol for performing high efficiency CRISPR genome editing of intestinal organoids. Visit www.stemcell.com slash CRISPR dash intestinal organoids to learn more. Before we get to the intestinal side of things, I'm going to bring it back to the heart. I mentioned that I wouldn't talk as much about the heart on previous podcasts, but here I go. Here I go. I'm going to go ahead and talk about my favorite organ. But hey, this is actually a paper that was referred to by our previous guest, former ISCR president himself, Deepak Srivastava. He actually mentioned uh, this work during his interview, and the title of this paper, which came out in Science, is network-based screen in iPSC-derived cells reveals therapeutic candidate for heart valve disease. First author is Christina Theodorus, who I think was a former MD-PhD student of his. And uh, also on the paper are Sheng Ding, who is known for his expertise in CRISPR screening and uh, high-throughput screening over at UCSF. And also Casey Gifford, who I believe is a, a new PI at Stanford. So we, we know about calcific aortic valve disease. It's a really common problem. It's a common valve disease in the elderly, and it's actually the third leading cause of heart disease overall. I don't know if you knew that. So for people affected, the calcium actually starts to accumulate in their heart valves and vessels over time until they actually end up hardening like bone calcium, right? So as a result, as you might expect, blood is not able to flow as well out of the heart and in the, the vessels of the body. So it gets obstructed, and ultimately this leads to heart failure. But there aren't too many therapies currently existing for you know, aortic valve disease. What you have to do and what patients end up going through is to actually just replace the valve itself when it becomes calcified enough. So that's the end game, really. The cool thing about this paper is that it's following a, a patient family that Dr. Srivastava has actually uh, helped in the clinic for the last 15 years. I believe when he was in his training, he identified this family with a mutation in the disease gene, in, in, in the gene Notch1, which is actually something we'll be talking to uh, our guests today about a little bit as well. So the members of this family that were being treated by uh, Deepak were, uh, had this mutation in Notch1 and actually crossed five generations of people with like this particular mutation. And so you can identify the, the genetic cause, this mutation in one copy of Notch1. And it's this mutation alone that's thought to be causing this calcific aortic valve disease. Um, and really, this, this is what leads to the disease phenotype. So this is 
the foundation, right? And as you might expect, they ended up generating iPSCs from this family. Uh, they turned them into the cells that actually lined the valve, and this helped them understand why the disease is actually happening. The next thing was generating a mouse model of calcific aortic valve disease. This was actually uh, all led again by uh, Dr. Theodorus, who was a former MD-PhD student. This is it's, – it's really a powerful study because you're going from, as we discussed before the podcast, you're going from – bedside to bench and back to ba back to bedside. Ultimately, they found a drug candidate. They found uh, through a high throughput screen, they found a molecule that could actually correct the overall network, the gene network that's actually going awry in the, the valve disease using uh, AI, machine learning to actually detect whether a cell was healthy or sick based on their transcriptomic signal. Okay, and after identifying this candidate, and after doing this 1600 molecule, small molecule screen, uh, they, they showed in an in vivo system, the mouse model, that they could actually correct uh, the calcification of the, of the valves in the heart in, in these mice through a, uh, basically a pretreatment. So it's like a clinical trial in a dish combined with a clinical trial in a mouse. And since it worked quite impressively, I think uh, just looking at the, the numbers here, you're able to get a five-fold reduction in the amount of uh, calcification that's actually happening in, in these mice. And so it's it's a preclinical study that's ultimately going to move towards the clinic. They're straight up said this is going to be – they're initiating clinical trials uh, with this particular molecule uh, in the in the months to come. So it's a it's a neat study coming from you know one of the world's leaders when it comes to everything iPSC cardiomyocyte. Uh, he's a he's a he's a mentor of mine. He's you know an icon in the field, and he's doing incredible basic science work that's really leading to true true translational uh, drug discovery and ultimately a candidate for this disease, calcific uh, uh, aortic valve disease. Yeah, it's great work. And you said that it's bedside to bench to bedside. And there's also, I like about it, is the, the symmetry and the kind of full circle that we've come. You know, the focus has been for so many years for us, regenerative applications. But this is another example of using the pluripotent stem cell system, IPS-based system, to understand the disease and 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 understand the mechanism and then, you know, find a, a target and develop something that's more in line with the classic pharma paradigm that we know works, you know? So I'm not saying it's, it's better or worse in the regenerative, but it's, it's nice that you see, uh, the stem cell studies impacting all levels of medicine and therapy. So really exciting work. Yeah, really neat stuff. And I think this sort of serves as a paradigm and maybe a model for how we might want to approach our IPSC work in the future. Of course, this isn't something that's entirely accessible to every lab at this point. I don't think every single lab has the the machine learning or the AI expertise that they would have over at UCSF, but they're able to take their resources to, to full advantage. So they combined the machine learning with the IPSC system, with the mouse model, uh, and the drug screening to ultimately discover this target. But hey, you know, everybody's doing it, right? Everybody's trying to pick up some machine learning expertise. So maybe this is something that'll become commonplace in the next 10 years in the field. Got to have the resources. 
uh, mm -hmm. and talking about resources. We got a resource for you out of, of a cell that I'm covering. It's about uh, human intestinal development. And as you alluded to there, you know, these big labs, they can harness these resources um, and, you know, glean these major insights. A uh, great byproduct of this story is that there's this public database called the Star Finder that can facilitate further work for other groups. But we'll circle back to that. We're talking about the intestine. You know, it's huge. It's a big organ. It's long. It's kind of gross when you really think too much about it. <laughs> but um, it's not just the scale of the thing, right? We're going to talk about that with Dr. Lee. It's also how multifaceted it is in its function. You know, it's not only mediating the nutritional requirements of the body, but it's also... Uh, governing immunity. You know, there's an immune interface there. And there's also the, uh, the idea that's get big now of the microbiota. There's this whole symbiotic element, right? So it's not even just intrinsic to the, to the self. We've got some commensalist or, I don't know, maybe some bad guys there too. That's another paper. But um, the point being is that there's a lot of interacting cell types, right? And that's in the mature intestine, the functioning intestine, but we really don't have a very good picture of how these cells develop and how they comprise, you know, not only the repertoire of specialized cell types, but also the morphology and the unique morphology that accounts for this uh, miraculous um, stem cell niche activity that we're so enamored with. So in order to drill down on that, Allison Simmons, who's from Oxford, uh, got into some serious resources here. This is this newfangled uh, approach called spatial transcriptomics. So they did, you know, classic um, 10x single cell RNA seq, but they also did this new thing from 10x that uses uh, the sp a spatial element. Essentially, you, you can take a, a fresh frozen piece of tissue and you cut at like 10 micron thickness, just like normal in a cryostep, but you put it onto this um, six by six, roughly millimeter capture area that has 5,000 uh, oligo barcoded spots in a matrix. So effectively you can have the, the barcodes there that are attributed to that spatial uh, region. And therefore when you do the single cell sequencing, you can uh, get a corresponding, you know, morphology and where the cell was effectively. Big deal tech. I've been waiting for a, a stem cell paper that applied this. I didn't have to wait long. Um, they took also, I mean, talk about resources. They, they really went Rambo here. This is 77 intestinal samples that were collected from embryos. All right. So this is precious resources, human embryos, 17 of them that were from a range of eight to 22 weeks post-conception. And that encompasses the really nitty gritty of intestinal development. So they did the spatial and the traditional transcriptomics on this single cell. Uh, and I mean, this is amazing. The amount of information that came out of here, get ready. Um, and in the follow-up, check out this star finder they found 101 cell states, okay, uh, as well as programs that are linked to key morphogenetic milestones. They uh, describe the principles of crypt villus axis formation, neural vascular mesenchymal morphogenesis, the immune population of the gut, so how the immune cells populate the gut, 
They also uh, identified the differentiation hierarchies of fibroblast, myofibroblast subtypes and found uh, diverse functions, multiple diverse functions for these cell types, including this novel uh, vascular niche type cell. They also found the origins of Peyer's patches um, and gut-associated lymphoid tissue. Huh? Described the location-specific immune programs. Um, and then they used that spatial element to get an analysis of the morphogen gradients, you know, looking at, at the transcription um, response in the, in the waves of differentiation uh, that occur throughout development. And also just casually, you know, while they're at it, they define the cells and locations that are linked to rare developmental intestinal disorders. So all that, I mean, it's an amazing resource and they put it online. They call it this spatiotemporal analysis resource of fetal intestinal development, a handy acronym that translates to star find. And they add a little ER there, star finder. All right, so guys, get out there and, and find your stars in, in this intestinal <laughs> resource. It's amazing. It's an amazing amount of work. And I think uh, Dr. Simmons, as well as uh, her collaborators there, really should be applauded for this. Yeah, for anybody doing developmental intestinal biology, you can just go home. You can just go home. This is this is it. You know, this is everything you need to know right now. Like you said, this is a resource. This is a fantastic resource. It's uh, it's an atlas type paper at its finest, and a lot of these atlas type papers end up developing these publicly available online resources. I think it's the norm these days. You can uh, listen to our previous shows, and we actually talked about very similar things for I believe the heart and other atlas type papers as well. So go play around the the star finder and find your stars, as Dalen mentioned. Actually, I don't know if you know. Um, very recently, Nature announced that spatial transcriptomics was their quote-unquote method of the year for 2020. I think this actually just came out in January of, this, of 2021. So it makes sense. It's a very hot technology. It's very powerful. You can combine the power of single cell with a spatial element. And it sounds like something that you really want to incorporate into your own lab based on how excited you were about it. Yeah, man. I'm excited about it, but I feel like I'm too late. Once you see the first paper and you haven't even like submitted your work, uh, you know, it's it's two years for me before I have anything close to this. But, you know, I'm going to start working on the next thing, Arun, which mark my words, somebody's going to do like a serial sectioning thing and create like a, a 3D. You know, this is a 2D spatial transcriptomics. Get ready for 3D spatial transcriptomics. I called it method of year 2022. OK, that's my forecast. Uh, stay tuned for that. I'm sure he's already filed a patent on it, perhaps. <laughs> Anyways, we're moving on to, uh, to the bone marrow. We're moving on to the blood. We're going to talk about a unique paper. That's, it's, a, it's a fun thought experiment. A fun, it's fun to think about this one. Uh, you know, Pain-sensing neurons, nociceptive neurons. Apparently, they can mobilize blood stem cells, hematopoietic stem cells, from the bone marrow. So the title of the paper is Nociceptive Nerves Regulate Hematopoietic Stem Cell Mobilization. Last author is Paul Fernet. First author is Shin Gao. Yeah, so the we all we talk about the blood, right? We talk about the hematopoietic system. It's a favorite of yours. Um, these blood stem cells are really critical for 
a lot of different types of functions, really. And it's become more apparent recently that they can be activated in a bunch of different ways, right? It's not just these chemical-based approaches that you might be able to activate HSCs, but perhaps pain-sensing nerves can also make connections with the bone marrow. But the question that this particular paper, which was published in Nature, uh, is trying to uh, address is that can these pain-sensing neurons and nerves actually end up mobilizing HSCs too? This is the, uh, the question, and the answer is apparently it has something to do with chili peppers, right? capsaicin. So it's of, of obviously you know, a lot of clinical importance because we want to be able to uh, activate HSC mobilization. You know, autologous stem cell transplantation is obviously very critical for people with uh, various forms of leukemias and blood cancers. And the procedure actually requires a way to get the HSCs to leave their bone marrow niche and actually enter the bloodstream to be collected. All right. So it's been around for a long time that you can use this granulocyte colony stimulating factor, GCSF, uh, which, you know, to, to activate HSCs and to mobilize them into the bone marrow. And there's other forms of doing this, including plurexophore, which is a small molecule that can also stop HSCs from actually remaining glued to the the bone marrow scaffold, right? And there have uh, been a number of different advances over the last few decades that can combine GCCF with plurexophore, but in a lot of people, HSCs still don't mobilize, right? And uh, these are the thought to be because of different risk factors, age, genetics, the type of cancer, Apparently, up to 25% of people with lymphoma actually show poor mobilization. And so this is where this paper comes in. They developed an immunofluorescent imaging survey of the bone marrow's nerve fibers, the, the nerves that are actually found in the bone marrow. And interestingly, they found that a lot of these, most of the nerves are nociceptive nerves, quote unquote, pain receptor, pain detecting nerves. They're uh, sensory neurons that actually protect organisms from danger by eliciting pain in response to injury, right? And they can be found in all sorts of areas of the body. Um, you pinch your skin, you know, you got no, no septic nerves there, but they're also found in, in the gut too. So they used, uh, uh, they used a variety of different pharmacological and genetic approaches to actually eliminate these neurons, and they found that that actually didn't have an effect on the maintenance of HSCs in the bone marrow, but it did lead to a reduction in the GCSF-induced mobilization of the HSCs to the bloodstream. So this suggests that this nociceptive uh, nerves and neurons can actually affect the HSC adhesion or migration. And then they came in with the CGRP, or calcitonin gene-related peptide, which is actually a major neurotransmitter that's secreted by these nociceptive neurons. And they found that by administering this uh, calcitonin gene-related peptide, CGRP, it really improved HSC mobilization after treatment with plurexophore or GCSF that I talked about, or both. And they observed that this can affect the HSCs directly rather than indirectly through the bone marrow. But really, (laughs) <laughs> the the fun part of this paper was the the spice. They spice it up, right? So they actually found that by introducing capsaicin, which is an element of spicy foods, uh, that actually induced HC mobilization even more. So can pain induction through in ingestion of uh, capsaicin, they basically sped, you know, fed the mice some spicy food over the course of weeks. 
uh, they found that there was an increase in HSC mobilization. Okay, so it makes sense. You're using capsaicin to induce a quote-unquote pain response, and this pain response is actually what's activating the HSCs into, uh, into the blood. So this is a it's a fun story. It's it's fun to think about. You know, if you maybe if you have uh, a bit of pain eating some spicy foods, your blood is going to start moving a little faster and getting you know a little bit more differentiated. Uh, so there's but there's certainly a clinical element to it too. Maybe you can mimic the effect of capsaicin because I don't know if you want to make capsaicin a <laughs> clinical therapy for HSC mobilization that these poor patients are already going through so much. I don't think you want to just feed them a bunch of spicy food, but it's a, it's a cool approach and a cool answer to a, an age long question. Yeah. Have a side of, uh, Frank's red hot with your, uh, GCSF, huh? <laughs> um, I, you know, for Ned, he's the king of this. He really kind of invented, I guess he deserves a lot of credit for pioneering the whole notion of the interface of the nervous system with hematopoiesis. And there's so many components to that, right? You know, we've talked about papers here on the show many times, you know, one that occurs from, I don't know if it was for NetLab or not, but, you know, the light-dark cycle and influence that has. Either way, the point being is that your experience is directly linked to your, you know, hematopoietic system for good reason, right? Sometimes you need to mobilize in response to the environmental cues. What is conceptually a little bit of a mind bender here to me is the idea of, I guess you need, it's more of an adjuvant. I don't know if alone the nociceptor, I guess he's showing alone that the nociceptor cannot mobilize. Um, but even so, it raises the kind of element of hematopoietic uh, exhaustion, progenitor exhaustion, maybe even like myelodysplastic syndrome or some kind of pathology that might emerge in people that love spicy food? What? Mm, wow. <laughs> hey, I love spicy food, not to generalize or anything. But yeah, it's uh, a lot to think about. And I think there's going to be definitely some follow-up work. Some things to actually consider here, leukemia itself Blood cancer itself can induce nerve induce nerve damage in the bone marrow, right? So you got to study the effect of the cancer and aging and see if that's actually negatively impacting the nose receptors too because they're apparently pretty fat, fragile. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot there. Uh, what Frenette does is he just gives you the pillar and then everybody you know builds around it. Um, so we're going back to the intestine, Arun, because that's what this show is about. All right. And, you know, I'm no expert. This is a basic story out of nature cell biology, a lot of mechanism here. We might have to get, uh, Dr. Lee to elaborate a little bit here, but, um, the story is it's about, uh, the stem cells, of course, you know, we talk about these LGR5 positive intestinal stem cells that are dependent on wind. You know, wind signaling in the intestine, they always say them in the same sentence. Um, but when it comes to uh, commitment, differentiation uh, of these intestinal stem cells, it's, it's appreciated as a binary decision between either an, an absorptive or a secretory progenitor uh, that's mediated by notch signaling, okay, lateral inhibition, which is another classic um, you know, pillar of morphogenesis. Uh, but when it comes to the secretory progenitors themselves, a the differentiation into the, all the different cell types, we talked about all the cells that are present in the intestine in the last story, but the secretory pre uh, progenitors, they can differentiate 
along different routes into goblet cells, tough cells, panic cells, or enter, enter endocrine cells, right? Um, and how they get there is still kind of open to debate, and there's some controversy. One possibility is that the uh, uh, intestinal stem cells themselves are kind of, you know, have more potential than we appreciate. And rather than going to these secretory progenitors, they may directly differentiate to the secretory cell types without going through a progenitor. Okay, so that's the question, or that's the possibility, that's the hypothesis. But I think that the dogma says that there's a multipotent or bipotent progenitor um, downstream of intestinal stem cells. Okay, so enter Fabian Thais and, and Heiko Lickert. Killed those names, sorry. Um, they're at Helmholtz Center, Munich, in Germany. I'm not very good with my German, my apologies. Um, but this was a, a really uh, impressive story. Forget about their names. It's the science that matters. They, they have this uh, really innovative mouse model that they used to kind of do a temporal lineage tracing. All right. And it was based on Wnt signaling here, though, not the classic Wnt beta catenin, but the non-canonical Wnt planar cell polarity. Okay. And I'm not going to go into it. There's a lot of reasons why you might think that Wnt... Um, plays a role. The, the PCP, planar cell polarity pathway, plays a role in this process. So they went downstream and, and, and made a reporter uh, to see if that was true and to test this hypothesis of direct differentiation that they had. Um, and what they found is that uh, these, that um, indeed, uh, when PCP pathway um, primes intestinal stem cells towards enterendocrine or panacell lineage, but they use this time-resolved lineage labeling to show, and this was the really the, what upset the dogma, that both of those lineages are directly recruited from intestinal stem cells via this unipotent transitional state, okay? So there's no bi or multipotent progenitor uh, of the, the secretory lineage. These ISCs just go direct, um, which is, you know, I don't think a lot of people... Uh, we're on board with that idea. So this is, a, I think, a, a conceptual innovation that, that um, redefines our understanding of the mechanisms un underlying intestinal stem cell lineage differentiation. Um, and it elevates Wnt again. There's another reason to say Wnt in the same breath as intestinal stem cells, but this time it's PCP, okay? This non-canonical Wnt planar cell po polarity pathway um, that is this new... Uh, our novel uh, niche signal that precedes notch, by the way. That's another finding here, that it comes before that notch lateral inhibition um, in intestinal stem cell lineage priming. So nature cell biology, they come with these, these mechanistic innovations. You can always count on it. This is pretty neat. So apparently the LGR5 positive intestinal stem cells that you're getting from this non-canonical wind signaling, it, they're identical. They're molecularly indistinguishable from the traditional uh, wind beta catenin activated uh, intestinal stem cells. I don't know if like, you know, I when I think of wind signaling, I always think of beta catenin because that's kind of the downstream mediator of uh, the transcriptional function. But yeah, I think there's really a, a role for the non-canonical side of the the wind signaling as well, and there's a lot we can we can learn to, uh, to see. The, the neat thing about this study is you're showing that both sides of the pathway have the same effect, hmm. and what makes me wonder is where else might that be the case, right? Um, 
is it true across the the plane for differentiation that you can potentially use these two things interchangeably? And maybe it says something about the redundancy of beta catenin itself. But hey, it's a great lead into our guest today, an expertise on wind signaling and expertise on intestinal stem cell biology, Dr. Vivian Lee. Yeah, she can tell us more about wind. What do you know? Wint. Wint. Wint is doing other stuff. Hey, what do you know? Wint is necessary and sufficient for this too. We're going to talk more about Wint with our guest, but before we get to that, if you guys are looking to add more physiological relevance to your research, Intesticult Media provides a complete workflow for establishing, maintaining, and differentiating human intestinal organoids. Use Intesticult organoid growth media to establish and maintain organoids in a more proliferative state, then to achieve more physiologically relevant proportions of differentiated cell types for your experiments, as we were alluding to in the Roundup stories, you can passage your cultures in Intesticult organoid differentiation medium. Receive an offer to try Intesticult in your lab by visiting us online at www.stemcell.com slash try dash intesticult. I am not going to spell it. You will find it. Now let's get on to our guest, Dr. Lee. I can't wait for this one. She can help help us decipher a little bit of these 101 cell states maybe in, in the developing intestine. That's going to be a long interview, I'm afraid. Maybe we'll, we'll cut it down and get the top 10. Let's get to it. All right, you guys. Today, we are delighted to have as a guest on the show, Dr. Vivian Lee, who is group leader of the Stem Cell and Cancer Biology Laboratory at the Francis Crick Institute. The Lee Lab investigates how wind signaling controls stem cells in the healthy gut and during colorectal cancer development. They also aim to engineer functional intestinal constructs using patient-derived intestinal organoids. Dr. Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Dalen and Arun. Very nice meeting you guys, and uh, thank you for having me here. Well, it's our pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining us. First question, you know, I just want to, well, first before the first question, I just want to lay out some statistics for our listeners, because even though they may be savvy to the molecular and cellular apparatus surrounding the intestinal stem cell, I mean, they ought to be. We talk about intestinal stem cells all the time, and they are kind of like the, 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 prime, the primary organoid, you know, the original organoid I like to think of them as. Um, so yeah, everybody knows about intestinal stem cells, but I don't know, I just want to remind everybody about the anatomy. You know, the adult small intestine is about 20 feet long. That's a lot of organ. No one's trying to make that much organoid. Um, but people think of it also as just, you know, a simple tube. Well, not that simple, but a tube. It's, it's not that simple. There's, there's the duodenum, the jejunum, the ileum, and more. Uh, so why don't you just, you know, give us an overview about your specific interest in the small intestine and what is one or more of the major unmet clinical needs that can be addressed by your work? So um, basically, our lab studies stem cell and cancer biology in the guts in general. And we try to investigate how intestinal stem cells are maintained um, under tissue homeostasis and also try to understand what happens when this goes wrong. 
Um, so intestinal stem cells is actually um, sitting in the um, bottom of the crypt. So there is the crypt villus structure of the small intestine. And it's almost like a conveyor belt system where stem cells keep proliferating, generating new cells, differentiating into all different cell types and migrating up to the villi, which eventually died and shed to the lumen. So um, the stem cells actually, uh, stem cell research uh, focused pretty much on the intestine, the organoid, for example, developed initially in the small intestine. And one of the reasons is because it's highly regenerative. Um, the surface layer of the entire intestine is, if you open up the entire gut, is around the whole tennis cords, which is a very large surface area. And this can be regenerated every five days, roughly around five days, which you can imagine how high is the proliferative potential of these intestinal stem cells, which also make it a really ideal research tool for stem cell research purpose. Um, so we are actually interested in two intestinal diseases, colorectal cancer and intestinal failure. And our aim is to improve the treatments of both diseases by developing new therapeutic strategies. Um, I would like to think these two diseases are kind of like extreme of the spectra, the two spectra. One is more um, like overgrown of the stem cells, so hyperproliferation of stem cells leading to cancer. And the other end is lack of stem cell regeneration, either because of the loss of stem cell potential or insufficient stem cell numbers, and eventually leading to uh, organ failure, intestinal failure. So we're actually really interested in the molecular biology behind and also trying to develop new treatment strategies, such as tissue engineering, to uh, develop a new organ therapeutic approach um, using organoids. Yeah, it's a great model system. Some might say it's a, it's a perfect model system for studying stem cell biology and also the intersection of intestinal biology and cancer biology. We've actually had a, a mentor of yours, Hans Cleavers, on the show not too long ago to talk about all things intestine. And it's really caught on as a, as a fantastic model system and with the organoids in particular. But your lab has focused really strongly on Wnt signaling, you know, this really famous molecule that's involved in all aspects of intestinal stem cell function and homeostasis and so on and differentiation. It's, it's a molecule that's really everywhere during development and homeostasis, right? And it seems we've already learned so much about it, but we're still figuring out novel ways to manipulate Wnt in stem cell biology. So tell us about the unique angle that your lab is actually taking in studying Wnt's role in intestinal function. So as you as you just mentioned, the wind signaling pathway is actually one of the key pathway regulating a lot of tissue, particularly intestine as well. Um, it's very important to maintain stem cell, um, just the homeostasis, but also the key problem is that in colon cancer, almost all colon cancer will have hyperactivation of wind signaling pathway by mutating at least one of the wind pathway components. So it is a really um, important pathway for tissue maintenance, but also often hijacked by cancer cells as well. Now, although this is really well studied, like the pathway itself and uh, the role in, in the intestine, in intestinal stem cell and cancer, but surprisingly, there is still no drug in the clinic to actually treat colon cancer by inhibiting wind pathway. So this is a really uh, obvious 
drug targets, but so far still we don't have um, much success on that. And I think one of the problem, there are probably a few reasons, but one of the key challenge is the on-target toxicity because wind pathway is not only a hyperactivator in cancer, but also very important in many normal tissue maintenance and particularly for gut stem cells, for example. So if you develop wind inhibitors, there are actually quite a few wind inhibitors um, developed in the past, but none of them can go to the clinic where one of the key challenge is because of the toxicity that you kill not only cancer cells, but you basically wipe out all the intestinal stem cells and the patients are suffering a lot. Uh, because of the drug. So our approach is to try to understand the wind pathway regulation in both normal tissue homeostasis and in colon cancer and trying to find a unique angle, a tumor-specific target that we can uh, inhibit wind pathway only in cancer cells but not in the normal stem cell where we can spare the normal tissues and to reduce the toxicity. So that's one of the major focus. Um, so that's why in the past couple of years in our lab, we spent quite a lot of time trying to understand how wind pathway is regulated in both normal stem cell maintenance condition and, and also colon cancer. And we actually found quite an interesting target called USP7, which is a deubiquitinating enzyme. And we believe that it actually activates wind signaling, specifically in APC-mutated colon cancer cells, which is like majority of colon cancer. Um, and this can be used as a tumor-specific target. So we published that paper and mostly characterizing the biochemistry of that, where we found USP7 is to deubiquitinate beta-catenin. So now we are actually developing a um, mouse model, trying to really study the therapeutic potential of USP7 um, in mouse tumor model and see whether we can really use it as a tumor-specific target. So it's something that we're really interested to pursue. Yes, that's, I mean, it, that amongst other uh, exciting prospects for Wnt targeting and treatment of many diseases. But to be honest, whenever I hear uh, Wnt being vital to whatever pathway or function, I groan internally because, you know, you just said it. It seems like it's necessary or sufficient for most things. And it's not, you know, you know maybe it is a little bit of bitterness. I had a paper along these lines, you know, went doing two different things temporarily uh, in the same cell type a couple years ago. So maybe it is a little bit of bitterness, but I don't want to, I want to think that it's not me just throwing shade on there. It's just, you know, I'm exhausted. When I think of Wnt, my mentally, I'm just exhausted um, because it's not just that it's essential for, for the good as well as the bad, but it's also really complex. There's so many intersections with other signaling pathways. So on that note, I was delighted to see that you're also into notch in uh, intestinal stem cell differentiation. Notch is another rabbit hole I don't want to go down. But um, looking at the amazingly dynamic behavior of intestinal stem cells in the native intestine as well as in these in vitro organoids, I mean, I'm not surprised. I mean, I'm surprised more people don't focus on notch because it seems like it's really contact mediated signaling that would play an important role there. So can you just elaborate a bit on on the, the role that notch? I know there have been other studies of notch. You're not the only one. But can you elaborate a little bit on on how notch plays in these intestinal stem cells and how um, you may also use that as a kind of therapeutic lever 
for treatment of, of disease? Yeah, so notch pathway is also very important for normal intestinal stem cell homeostasis, and mainly is regulating the lineage specification in the gut, and actually in many other tissue systems as well. Um, in normal intestine, notch is required to drive the absorptive versus secretory lineage, which is relatively well characterized. So it is quite known that notch on is required to promote push to androcyte differentiation, absorptive lineage, whereas notch off is to drive secretory lineage. So this part is quite well characterized. Um, we think there is still something missing in the field, which is the crosstalk between uh, win and notch, and possibly with other key developmental pathway as well. Um, how exactly um, is the uh, the interaction between the pathways at the very early progenitors? Is the decision making process, which is quite key for stem cell maintenance and possibly for um, cancer development and tissue regeneration as well. Because these early progenitor cells, when they just exit the stem cell niche um, at this really plus four or five early progenitor cell region, they are very plastic. And there are many, many studies trying to understand how this plasticity is happening. So when stem cells are damaged, how do they differentiate back to stem cells and regenerate the whole organs? So this is the key power of the intestine. You need this regenerative power. And so far, I think we still lack quite a lot of molecular understanding um, underlying this process. So there are lots of markers marking this plus four, five cell region, like um, BMI1, um, uh, MTERTS, lots of these uh, new cell type plus four cell type markers. But the actual underlying molecular mechanism, which we think is still missing, and our understanding with win and notch together, we think is quite essential for this dynamic cell population to, for normal stem cell homeostasis, to drive the this fate's decision, but also for uh, injury-induced regeneration as well, like how the signaling regulation together drive this uh, plasticity of the early progenitor cells. So that's something we're really interested to look at. Yeah, Wint and Notch, Notch and Wint. We can talk about the signaling all day and Dalen will tell you, I'm a big fan. I'm an aficionado of Wint signaling myself. You know, I'm focused more on the cardiogenesis side of things, but uh, let's step up from the signaling and talk a little bit more about the model system. So before we actually get into your nature medicine paper, let's talk about organoids. So we discuss them almost every show here on the Stem Cell Podcast, but they're particularly powerful as next-gen models for studying intestinal function because they can form those canonical, rudimentary, Kripvillis-like structures in three-dimension, right? And you can't really get that sort of architecture, that detailed architecture in 2D. But even though these intestinal organoids are still quite advanced in this way, how can we make them even better? And how are you guys using this in your lab? So structurally, how can they be further improved? And how can we take these organoids to the next level? So organoids are really quite important for regeneration. So it's really highly regenerative um, cells. Um, so, currently, the organoids can be cultured in a matrix gel uh, in three-dimensionally, which form different structure. So, things that are missing at the moment is the stromal microenvironments, which is quite key for um, 
tissue homeostasis, for cancer microenvironments. So a lot of things actually are coming from the stromal mesenchymal cell populations, which currently in the epithelial organoid culture system is supplied by the growth factors that we put in the media. Um, the further application of organoid that we're trying to do is to engineer a, um, a complete system using a tissue engineering approach, a scaffold base combined with organoids and other cell types to recreate a physiological gut graft for regenerative purpose and also for disease modeling as well. Now, one of our recent study in the Nature Medicine, for example, is to engineer a, a geogenial graft, specifically the mid-guts, because that's the major region for nutrients digestion, absorption. So we're focusing on that region. And we're trying to combine organoids, which is the epithelial cells coming from the patients, but also the scaffold as well, which in, in that particular project, we use um, biological scaffold, which is derived from patients. We obtain a patient tissue and we use a technique called decellularization, where we washed away all the cells by flushing the system with uh, enzyme detergent mixture, leaving behind this uh, translucent structure, which is basically um, a, a structural tissue containing of the extracellular matrix, essentially. So it's extracellular matrix protein to provide a structural support. And then we can combine seed the organoid cells back. And we actually seed not only organoid cells, but also a bit of stromal microenvironment as well. We obtain a fibroblast from patients. And we also get uh, endothelial cells as well and trying to recreate a more physiological gut, which can be used for transplantation purpose. Yes, I mean, you're... You're taking it next level, right? I mean, it's been an exciting year for organizers across the board, but I, I think the pace of advance has been the most impressive to me. I, I can remember it seems like very, very recently that we were just looking at, you know, three dimensions was an organoid. And now just in this year, we're looking towards, you know, vascularized organoids. Um, you know, just recently, Dr. Pasca had some assembloids and cell, you know, that's three different uh, organoid types fused together. So we're really taking it to the next level. And I think in, in this specific year, 2020, that's been overshadowed by COVID, we have to acknowledge also the, that organoids have been used a lot to model the entry and kinetics of, of coronavirus. Um, and yeah, you just said it. I mean, you're you're improving these these organoids to the point where you want it to look just like the native. Uh, so I could see how technologically you're moving these these organoids to the most bona fide. But in terms of the application, you said to use them for graphs, right? Which is one obvious thing, but also the modeling. Um, moving past COVID, what do you see? Uh, it seems like everybody's been COVID, 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 but your interest is more, you know, cancer as well as other pathologies. As, as you move past this focus on COVID, what do you see as the most exciting application of these really native bona fide intestinal organoids for disease or tox, toxicology modeling? So I think organoids are really very intriguing model for uh, a lot of reasons. 
And um, one of the key applications for us particularly that we're interested in is regeneration. So we're trying to use organoids to reconstruct organ, in our case intestine, for um, tissue regeneration, for transplantation purpose. But there are also lots of other applications as well. And um, I mean, it's a very well-known application uh, clinically, which is for uh, the use of drug testing in the clinic, where you can culture organoids from deceased patients, such as cancer patients, and do lots of drug screening. So I think this is another probably um, a, quite a major investment in the next couple of years. I think really trying to expand this to um, more, more drug screening purpose. Um, I think there are quite a lot of uh, well, lots of preclinical studies, lots of paper published using it as drug screening model. And so far, it's not exactly going to the clinic yet, which I think hopefully in a few years' time it will be. And one of the things is to standardize the organoid culture system because it can still fluctuate a little bit between lab to lab using different reagents or slightly different protocols, which can affect slightly the results. Um, so one of the things is to really standardize it in order to roll out to the clinic. I think it will be really very exciting in the future. Another uh, issue of organoid at the moment is lack of the microenvironment that I just mentioned, which is uh, for cancer, for example, the tumor microenvironment is quite important and it will also affect your results for drug screening. Um, as you can imagine, for example, the uh, very popular uh, drug immunotherapy that people are trying to apply these days, you need the immune microenvironments, which people are trying to co-culture in the system as well. But so far, I don't think there is a very reliable, consistent co-culture system that allow um, a high throughput, large scale screening purpose. So people are still working on that. Um, so in our lab, for example, we're really trying to build an improved system of organoid, which is to combine the microenvironment. So one of the ways is what we published in the Nature paper to reconstruct using the scaffold to hold everything together, to put all different cell components together. Another way that we are also trying to focus on, which is a bit simplified system than our Nature paper, um, instead of reconstructing a full thickness, the whole tissue, we're focusing on a mucosal engineering. So which is the mucosal layer of the guts, the inner lining of the guts. So that's mainly epithelial cells, um, the muscularis mucosa, which is the stromal cells, uh, including a bit of immune cells as well. So in that case, you're not spending a lot of time trying to reconstruct the neuromuscular layer, which can be quite challenging, and the vascular network as well, which is another specialized um, area. So we're more focused on the mucosal engineering, where you can use it for not only for regenerative purpose, but also for disease modeling, a more representative physiological approach for disease modeling as well. And for in terms of the tissue engineering purpose, we think this is actually possibly a, um, a simplified but also more practical approach to regenerate the mucosa. So you can imagine it's kind of like we're trying to 
engineer a sheet of mucosa that you can actually detach and transplant back to the patients. It's a bit like skin and graftsman, but using transplanting back to the guts. Um, we think this is more practical and more achievable, and possibly can um, improve the transplantation efficiency rather than just organoid on its own. Yeah, you talk about clinical translation, and I think that's a dream for stem cell biologists and biomedical researchers in general. And you're really at that boundary, and that's part of the reason I really loved your Nature Medicine paper, because you can really see the application and how you can actually help kids who badly need these intestinal grafts. So when it comes to actually bringing some of your work, like the tissue scaffolding, tissue engineering, intersected with stem cell biology, uh, when it comes to actually bringing that to the clinic, how close are you and how closely affiliated is your lab to, uh, say, companies or uh, other entities that may be able to bring some of these in vitro therapies and bench, you know, bench side therapies actually to patients? So that's actually one of the key questions in the field as well. Um, I think it depends on what strategy of engineering that you're referring to. Now, for example, in Japan, I know they're trying already some clinical trial of transplanting organoids, just organoid on its own for a regenerative purpose, um, for example, to treat Crohn's disease patients. Now, although organoids on its own is quite highly regenerative, but you can imagine just organoids is quite limited in a small scale, and it can also result in quite patchy regeneration in the entire guts. Um, so that's why we're trying to engineer a graft instead of just organoids. Um, but if you want to engineer a full thickness intestine, which can be quite challenging because in our nature paper, nature medicine paper, it's really interesting that we're trying to um, focusing on the mucosa, but also we have the scaffold containing the full thickness intestine, which allow us to engineer the whole thing. But the neuromuscular layer, the vasculature, everything together will take longer time to optimize. And it's quite challenging as well for a piece of soft tissue uh, reconstruction. So that I think it will take a bit longer time um, I, I would say probably, hopefully, five to ten years' time. Um, and we are actually trying to look into a bit more in-between intermediate approach, uh, which is the mucosal engineering. And that's more reasonable that you can possibly engineer a um, mucosa with either scaffold. We can actually use the scaffold and detach the mucosa. Or you can use even collagen-based gel to reconstruct a scaffold, um, a mucosal layer that you can detach and transplant to the patient. So this, I think, is more reasonable, and we can optimize that with um, an in, in introduction of stromal cells, mesenchymal cells, immune cells together, and you can possibly incorporate the microbiome as well at some points. And that, I think, is more achievable and possibly can be uh, going to the clinical trial within years. And um, my collaborator in this paper, for example, Paolo de Coppi, he's from Great Ormond Street Hospital. He's a pediatric consultant. And he actually mentioned that there were quite a lot of sick patients, children with uh, intestinal failure, that they are really um, desperate for a treatment. So if there is no alternative treatment options, they can actually um, apply these tissue engineering grafts for transplantation purpose. 
So we're not that far from going to the clinic. We just need to to develop a more reliable, consistent approach, which is safe enough to deliver to the patients. So for something like mucosal engineering, I think it can be achieved within years. Wow. You know, the, uh, the exciting thing for me uh, about your work, I'm skeptical of, of engineers who are of the mind that humans can make a system better than nature. So I love this gray area of taking the, the fabric, so to speak, of the, you know, the decellularized scaffold there as the basis, because you can't do better than nature and then reseeding with healthy, healthy cells. I think it's like the, a beautiful hybrid of, of nature and, and science and engineering. So I, I find it really exciting, but you talk about practicality and Again, you're kind of like in this gray area where there's there's this kind of halfway point, right, where you can take the tissue out of the patient maybe and then engineer and put it back in. Something that seems, again, there's a precedent for that in uh, in therapies, you know, in hematopo hematopoietic transplant, et cetera, gene therapy. So, um, and that skin grafting, uh, you know, that we've reported on this, on this uh, for epidermolysis bullosa. So, yeah, we've talked about this, and it seems more practical. It's already in the clinic. And another thing, you know, we talk about is the, um, that I've read about is these, the pigs, you know, using these genetically engineered pigs as donors, which to me, again, it seems like even more practical. It's just they're there. Um, don't need to do much engineering apart from the genetic engineering. I read this article in Circulation describing the, that pigs for xenotransplantation of heart, that the, it could be by the end of 2021, the end of this new year. Uh, and this wasn't some crazy, you know, this is some real scientists saying that they, they, they project you could see pig hearts in human end of 2021. Whether or not that's a realistic timeline. Is there a similar potential for xenotransplantation of like jejunum or other intestinal grafts from pig, or is the anatomy just much different um, in pigs? So pig organs generated from pig has been discussed before and has been published before as well, as you mentioned, heart um, uh, organ transplantation. But I think one of our... Um, key message in the paper and also our research interest is to develop autologous transplantation. So getting cells and scaffolds from the patients. Actually, we can um, generate scaffold from pig as well. So we can obtain piglet intestine and perform decellularization in the piglet intestine. So we can obtain a scaffold generated from porcine, which we can then um, regenerate um, the, the engineered tissue using patient-derived organoids onto this piglet scaffold. So we could use piglet tissue, uh, which is possible, which may also um, resolve the uh, lack of tissue issue, the organ donor issue. Um, but we're trying to actually take a step forward to go for everything patient-derived material, mm. cells particularly. We want to use patient-derived cells rather than um, pig, piglet organoids, um, which will largely reduce the rejection issue um, and the future use of immunosuppression as well. So that's one of the actually key message of our story. And scaffold also coming from human has not been very well characterized. And the combine of 
uh, human organoids, human fibroblasts, human scaffolds to recreate a human autologous graft, which I think is really bringing it closer to the clinic than piglet tissue. Mm. Yeah, autologous transplantation really is the dream. And, you know, it's uh, it's something that's become much more accessible, especially with the advent of iPSCs, for example, where you might be able to make a patient's own personalized tissues from uh, derived iPSCs. Although we still have issues when it comes to the cost of such autologous therapies that could be somewhat prohibitive. But hey, it's 2021. Anything's possible, right? So shifting away from your science, well, I guess we'll still talk a little bit about the science, but let's talk a little bit more about your scientific training, okay? And you've been able to travel the world during your training, starting off at the University of Hong Kong for your PhD before actually heading to Europe to train with Hans Cleavers, who we had in the show a few months ago. Uh, and ultimately, you actually started up your own lab at the MRC National Institute for Medical Research, which is actually now part of the Francis Crick Institute. So you've had exposure to the way science and intestinal biology and cancer biology is done around the world. And I'm against generalizations, but do you find concrete differences in the way science is conducted in say, Hong Kong versus Europe or Asia versus Europe? Or has biomedical research finally become so fully integrated around the world that it's hard to distinguish whether a lab is actually in Europe or Asia? So tell us about your worldwide training experiences. Yeah, I think um, the, the experience across different countries is quite important for a scientific scientific career training for any scientist. I think it's very important to get exposure to different environments. The, the difference between countries, I would say, depends on the timing as well, because when I was having my PhD training in Hong Kong, there was no organoids. The stem cell marker was just discovered of intestinal stem cell, LGL5, for example. So you can't really compare at that time. The research in Hong Kong probably was less advanced at that time because everything, the research was less advanced as well. Um, but I think it depends on which lab you were in and what kind of research environments you're in is quite different as well. Now, for example, my PhD training was in a clinical setting, so it was in a pathology department. Um, more, we collect a lot of um, colon cancer patient materials. We did at that time was still micro uh, microarray, not RNA seq. Um, so we were doing lots of this transcriptomic analysis, um, association study with the histopathological data as well. Um, so it was lots of understanding of um, the human genetics in a cancer biology way, but less focus on the stem cell biology and, um, and also the developmental biology, for example. I felt like this part is missing. Um, and that's why I was trying to look for additional training in more focusing on developmental biology and basic understanding of the stem cell biology. And at that time, it was the discovery of LGL5 was just found. And uh, actually, Hans Klaefer came to Hong Kong to give a talk um, just, just before I, I finished my PhD. So I thought it was a really good opportunity. And that was really quite... Um, quite a, a interesting experience. I mean, it was really good that you go to a big lab and there were lots of really smart, intelligent scientists and 
often like constantly exchanging, discussing um, latest research ideas. And there were lots of exciting findings at that time. I joined at the time that they just discovered LGR5 and just developed um, the organoid technology, actually. Um, it was the time when I joined just the year before that. Um, so everything was coming out really exciting in the lab. So that was uh, a very good experience. And I learned also not only organoid technology, but also the mouse genetics, uh, which I think is quite important to integrate your clinical training and the basic biology, uh, mouse genetics, uh, all this biochemistry work, combining together to develop your own research program. And I was also quite lucky when I finished the postdoc training in Hans Clifford's lab. It was the time that when they opened the position for the transition between NIML to the Francis Crick Institute, which, um, yeah, I somehow got lucky with the timing as well. And I set up a lab, which is my longstanding interest since my PhD that I did my colorectal cancer research study. And actually, my grandma died of colon cancer as well. So, I mean, lots of people experience colon cancer, which I think is one of the um, key human disease that people want to tackle. And intestine, I find it really fascinating organ to work with. As I mentioned, all this highly regenerative power, the huge understanding of the molecular understanding, signaling control, uh, the stem cell hierarchy, which gives you really good opportunity to interrogate the molecular understanding of the stem cell and cancer biology. So I really, I was very interested in, con in continuing uh, the research in colon cancer. And particularly, we are really excited for focusing on wind signaling pathway, although it's kind of well characterized, but still no, no drug is available in the clinic, surprisingly. And it's something that we think um, it's very exciting to continue. Yes, the mysteries uh, of Wint will continue to be withheld, I'm afraid. We won't be able to unearth every last one. Um, Vivian, thank you so much for this scientific discussion. Before we let you go, I want to ask you a couple science peripheral questions. Uh, first of those, I love this one, is uh, what was your greatest or most memorable science revelation or surprise, a so-called aha moment? Um, so that would be, I think, the time that our first paper was accepted in my independence lab, because that was uh, quite a long struggle, two years revision, and I was actually just starting my first maternity leave. So it was after two years struggle, and our paper finally got accepted, and I was celebrating with my newborn at that time. It was uh, really um, the, the most memorable moment. Um, so that was the story about uh, the finding of the USP7 as a tumor-specific target of uh, APC-mutated colon cancer. And till now, we're still working on that, trying to elaborate more in mouse colon cancer model, in, in human colon cancer organoid as well. And I think that's really a, a very important piece finding of the lab. Who better to celebrate with than your newborn? It's your best friend. Sounds like fun. Um, and I can say, you know, coming from a big lab and then having my own independent lab, it is so tough, right? Because when you're in the Cleaver's lab, you have the momentum of his whole career. 
you have his familiarity with the editors, you have that umbrella, right? And, and it's, it's, it's easier to get the paper through. And so you're going on that. And then your first struggle, the first paper out of your own lab is a big deal, no matter what the caliber. I can only imagine what it must have been like to have such a high profile paper for your first. Congratulations on that. Moving on to some fill in the blanks. First, the biggest thing in stem cell in the stem cell field right now is um, what well, definitely organoids, <laughs> um, which I mean I think organoid is one of the major research breakthroughs in recent years, probably after iPSCs and CRISPR targeting. Um, I mean we talk about lots of organoids, and I'm sure lots of your previous episode about organoids as well, and you can understand how how important of organoid is. It's not only important for stem cell research, but also because of this highly regenerative power, very versatile for gene editing and for um, high throughput expansion as well. So there were lots of potential translation potential in the clinic for regenerative medicine, for drug screening, for disease modeling, like even lots of people are using organoids for COVID research now to infect with the SARS virus. So really almost everything you can interrogate with organoids. So to me, it's actually one of the major biggest thing in the stem cell field. It is. It's everywhere. They are everywhere. We're running out of names. The organoid, we had the, now we're at assembloids. I'm coming out, I got poparoids, like potpourri, or uh, jambaloids, jambalaya-oids. I'm, I'm just making stuff up. All right, next. I would never have got to this point in my career without... Truffling aboard. So, yeah, as I mentioned, I actually, I was born and raised in Hong Kong. I did my PhD in Hong Kong. And I knew that if I wanted to further my career, I have to travel abroad and increase my exposure and um, just experience different scientific culture and the way of thinking science. And I think this is really critical for almost all scientists to, to improve your thinking and trying to think a bit out of the box as well and develop your own research interest, research program. I think that's really important. Critical. Get out there, people. When it comes to blank, I am pretty much useless. Sports. <laughs> it might be uh, for a lot of scientists, but for me particularly, I actually, since my high school or my university, I actually never have a break. So I finished my high school, went to university, and then I straight go into PhD um, study. And immediately, without any break, I jumped to postdoc and also immediately turned into group leader as well. So really no break, no time for anything else, including sports. Well, uh, you know, you may not be an athlete, but they have eSports now, you know, for the video games. My kid wants to be an eSports star. And they, I think they're going to come up with like size sports. OK, who does the best assay? I bet you could do a Western <laughs> like nobody's business. Last, if the lab catches fire and I have a chance to grab one thing on the way out. It is my... I hope I can take my minus 80 freezers, <laughs> if possible. <laughs> that will be all the precious materials, you know, like patient-derived organoids, all these things. But I don't think it's possible. <laughs> uh, so I think laptop, because that consists of everything. Our manuscript, our data, 
and all the information that I can use to recreate my own lab. So I guess laptop is the most important thing. Although actually there was one time we had a fire drill. I think I grabbed my laptop and coffee, basically. <laughs> the essentials. Um, I think the minus 80 is the correct answer, to be honest. And I, I can picture you just rolling that thing down the stairs ruthlessly because you know you got to do what you got to do to save the science vivian thank you so much uh you are an impressive individual and a delight to speak with thanks for sharing um we hope to have you on the show uh sometime in the near future thank you very much too very nice meeting you too all right, you guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests for this new year, 2021. You guys, we did it. We're through it. Brighter days ahead. Come back in a couple weeks and we might tell you more. 